Every once in a while, just like to draw attention to some things that go on, how many of you enjoy being able to sit in this auditorium without 75 crying babies? How many of you enjoy, as parents, being able to sit in here and not have to worry about what's going on with your kids and what they're being taught? Let's pray for our kids in children's church this morning. Let's pray that, that they'll hear the words of truth and that that truth will penetrate their hearts. And this week, I want to challenge you to pray for a group of kids that, that you may not think about praying about, but um, you need to be praying for our college students. You know, it's, it's about the time when they're starting to hit that wall, you know, where the assignments start to pile up, and, and, and it's where professors try to break the kids, you know. You remember, those of you who are in college, you know, they load it all up, see what they can do, and if you can take it or not. And uh, especially for the, those who are in their freshman years, this is a tough time for them. We got kids who are, who are gone off. We got some at, at Christian colleges, some at secular colleges. It doesn't matter where you're at, there's still secular people wherever you go. And so we want to pray for them, and, and I would challenge you this week to pray for them, maybe even identify a couple in your directory, send them a note encouraging them this week. They could, they could greatly use it. But before we go to the Word this morning, let's just pray. Let's pray for, for those kids in Children's Church this morning, and, and pray that God would open our hearts to receive the Word this morning. Father, what a privilege it is to, to be able to hear the Word this morning, to hear the very words of Jesus in just a moment as we read them. And Lord, also, what a privilege it is for our kids to be taught the word this morning. So we pray for those who are teaching in children's church this morning. Give them a calmness and a peace. And, and I pray that the gospel would be lifted up, that Christ would be lifted up, even with our youngest of kids, Lord, as they, they learn in children's church this morning. We're thankful for those who serve us each week. We're thankful for those who serve down in the nursery right now, for those who are serving, doing security in the building right now, Lord. May, may we not forget the sacrifices that people make just so that we can have this, what we would call experience this morning to be able to sit here. We love you. We thank you for our college kids. We pray for them this morning, Father. We pray that you would encourage them. We pray that, that as, the, as the coursework begins to pile up in the course of the semester, that, that it would only drive them to you and that they would put their confidence and trust in you. Lord, we ask that, that you would protect them from, from false teaching. I pray that they would stand on the truth of God's word. Lord, that you would use this time in their lives to, to prepare them for what you have called them to, we ask. Now, Lord, as we direct our attention to Luke 13, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are open to receive the truth. And Holy Spirit, come drive that truth deep into our hearts this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 13 this morning. Luke chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 31 through 35. And just a thought this morning. If you were to just open up your Bible to one of the Gospels, one of the four Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and put your finger down and, and maybe read even the words of Jesus, but if you were just to, to just kind of just open up your Bible to a, to a Gospel account and maybe just read one section of that Gospel account, would you get a true, accurate picture of who Jesus is? Would you? You might get a good picture of who Jesus is, but would you get a total accurate picture of who Jesus is? No. No. 
And, 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 and sometimes I think we wonder why four gospel accounts, especially when they sometimes repeat themselves. And I, and I think the point of it is, is, is that God knows that we need a really complete picture of who Jesus is. We need a really complete picture because Jesus came to reveal the Father, and so God in his grace has, has given to us four gospel accounts that, that kind of, if you will, give us a very well-rounded view of who Jesus is. To just pick and choose what we like would give us an incomplete view. And as we come to the Gospel of Luke, as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, Luke is writing this account to give a man that he's trying to, to explain Christ to a, a well-rounded picture of who Jesus is. And, and he wants to give him a picture of, of the complexity of how, of how Jesus, you know, how, his, how he even acted and how he worked. And just in these short verses here this morning, just five verses, in just this little snapshot, we get, we get ourselves this morning a picture of the complexity of Jesus. We're going to see Jesus as, as fully God and fully man. We're going to see, see him say some words that, quite honestly, I doubt that many of us men in this room would have the guts to say, to be just honest with you. He's going to say some things that are, that are really gutsy. But he's also going to say some things that probably most men in this room would be afraid to say too because they're very tender. And, and, and we're going to see two different sides of Jesus in this. We're going to see him showing tender emotion and compassion. And we're going to see him directly taking on a political figure and absolutely calling him out. Now, men, before you get defeated and you're like, well, I can never be like Jesus... These are written here as an example for us. And, and, and these are written here to, to help us not only just see Jesus clearer, but to be obedient in our following of him. So as we begin to, to unpack this passage of scripture, it may appear when I begin reading this that the Pharisees are trying to do Jesus a solid here, where they're trying to, they're trying to do him a favor here. But what do we know about Pharisees? Do, do the Pharisees like Jesus, church? No. So if the Pharisees are being nice to Jesus, what can we assume? They've got to have some kind of motive, right? There's got to be some kind of motive here. And, and, and so because it appears that the Pharisees are trying to be kind to Jesus here, that really should make us wonder as to what's going on here. It really should make us wonder as to what's happening here. To give you a backdrop as to, and to remind ourselves just how bad it's gotten, let's go back to chapter 11. Let's go back to chapter 11. Because in chapter 11, Jesus pronounces six woes on the Pharisees, beginning in verse 37. He's actually eating, okay? He's eating with the Pharisees. And, and, and remember, that he didn't wash before he ate with the Pharisees, and, and they're astonished by this. And, and he just unloads on them. Remember that when we talked about that months ago? He just absolutely unloads on the Pharisees. And so at the end of chapter 11, if you look down at verses 53 and 54, and as he, Jesus, went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. 
So literally, here's the agenda now of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. We absolutely hate you, Jesus. We hate the attention you're getting. We don't like what you're doing. We don't agree with the way you're doing it. You're not upholding our traditions the way we think they should be upheld. And so now they are going to dog him. They're literally following him wherever he's going. They're peppering him with questions to try to get him to say the wrong thing. Okay? How would you like to live in that environment? Someone constantly hounding you, asking you questions, hanging on your every word and ready, ready to go, aha, gotcha. That's the situation that Jesus is in. And so now when we come to chapter 13, we come now to verses 31 to 35. At that very hour, what very hour? Well, that refers back to the text that we saw last week where, where Jesus is talking about the coming kingdom and where he's saying, you know, understand this, my fellow countrymen, many of you are not going to be there. Okay? And, and in fact, he ends it with saying in verse 29, people will come from the east, the west, the north, and the south, and they're going to recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And some, then the last will be first and the first will be last. As soon as he says that, as soon as he says that, Luke says, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox. That is, that's not a nice thing to say, by the way, okay? We'll talk about that. Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day. I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So let's just unpack this with the time that we have this morning. The Pharisees come with a message for Jesus. And, and let's understand what's going on here. And we can surmise a couple things. They drop a name here. They drop Herod's name here. Okay. To him. And so as we're thinking about this, we have to understand who Herod is. Herod is the ruler in Galilee who's very familiar with Jesus, okay? He, he rules in Galilee and he rules in the region that's called Perea, which is to the east of the Jordan River. He rules those two regions. They're not even really geographically connected, but, but because of the way that they divided up authority there, they put Herod over this region and this region over here. And so what, what, Herod, what Herod has going against him right now is, is public opinion. Because he is still stinging because he has been unpopularly treated because he was the one who was responsible for beheading John the Baptist. Okay? And remember, John the Baptist was a really popular guy in Israel. Among the common people. He wasn't popular among the religious leaders, but he was, common, he was popular amongst the common people there. And Herod is still paying the price for killing John the Baptist. People are not happy. If you will, his approval ratings are sinking through the floor. Okay? And he doesn't want to have to deal with Jesus either. And so here's the thing. He knows 
He knows that he has no jurisdiction down in Judea, but he knows the religious leaders down there, the Sanhedrin would love nothing more than to have Jesus come into his, their territory so that they can finally find reason and cause to bring him to trial. And so the two work together here, the Pharisees and Herod, they work together. Isn't it funny how evil makes the most unlikely of bedfellows? Isn't it, un, isn't it just uncanny how that happens? In any other situation, Herod and the Pharisees would not get along at all. But they have a common goal here. And let's understand, and even in our world today, there is a common goal, and that is, and that is to, to, to hurt the cause of Jesus Christ. And whenever you can hurt the cause of Jesus Christ, you'll bring the strangest of bedfellows together, won't you? And so here we have Herod and the Pharisees working together. They're hoping that by saying this, he'll vacate out of, out of Perea and out of Galilee, and then he'll go down into Judea, which is exactly what the Sanhedrin wants. And so they give him this message, and you got to love Jesus' boldness here. you got to love Jesus' boldness. And, and, and I don't want to make too much of it, but I think it's really important to point out here. Jesus is fully God. He knows exactly what's coming his way. He, he, he knows how to answer questions. He, he, has, he has an amazing ability to, to put people off with his words. But he's also fully man. And as fully man, if you know that you are walking into a death trap, not many of us are excited to do that. And, and, and being fully man, he's, he's between a rock and a hard place here. Herod wants me. And the Sanhedrin wants me. I'm really, Jesus is a man without a country here right now. He's, he's, there's no place that's safe for him. And so here's how he responds. Verse 32, his first response is to Herod. Go tell that fox. To call somebody a fox means you're a cunning person, but you're very insignificant and worthless. Okay? Does that strike you as odd that Jesus would do that? Or does Jesus just name people for who they are? He names people for who they are. It's an expression of contempt. It's an expression of contempt. You can't get around it. That's, that's what he's doing here. He is expressing his contempt for Herod. Go tell that fox. It's interesting. We really, as you look, through, you look through the Gospels, Jesus has run-ins with the Pharisees, but he's not even this direct with the Pharisees. He calls them brood of vipers. Actually, to call somebody a brood of vipers is not as bad as to call somebody a fox. And, and what you'll find is, as you look through the Scriptures, that Jesus really only shows contempt in a very strong way twice. In a very strong way. And both times, it's with Herod. Because the second time is when he's on trial, and he's standing there literally on trial for his life. And remember, he stands before Herod. They drag him before Herod, and Herod starts asking him his questions, hoping that he can like, make him perform like a circus performer, like heal somebody or do something. And remember what Jesus does? He doesn't even speak to him. He doesn't even speak to him. And so here's what Jesus says. Go tell that fox this. He's like, I've got a message for you to take back to Herod. And here's what it is. See it there at the end of verse 32? Behold, I cast out demons and I perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day. I finish my course. Okay. 
this is a gutsy statement that he's just making here. Do you, do you understand what he's saying here? I am going to do what I was called to do, and you're not going to stop me. I, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it today. I'm going to do it tomorrow and the third day. That was, that was a, a way of saying in that culture, I am just going to go about my business. Okay? So, so he, he basically puts Herod on notice. Okay? You want to come and stop me? Then you better just come and stop me because I'm not going to stop with just your words. This is not just bold bravado that Jesus is just using big words here. What Jesus is saying here is this. I will not be changing my plans for you. What he's saying here is, my work is to do the will of the one who sent me. And I'm going to follow him. I'm going to be obedient to him. I'm not going to take my orders from you. I think that's instructive to us, church, in the world that we live in today. I think that's instructive. When authorities come and tell us what we're supposed to be doing, do we listen to the authority or do we listen to what God's called us to do? Now, we don't go looking for a fight. Jesus, and, and notice here, did Jesus pick this fight? Church, did Jesus pick the fight? No, the fight came to him, did it not? And let's understand, don't, don't hear me say this. Don't be listening online and hear me saying this, that PD is just going out and saying, let's just be civilly disobedient. Here's what I'm saying to us. When our following of God, our obedience to God, brings us into conflict with the world, we should be like Christ here. And if, and if there are a bunch of foxes that are calling us to do it, let's call them what they are. But let's be obedient to the one who has called us to do what we're called to do. So he, he says this, and he says, okay, here's a message for, for Herod. And at that point, I'm sure the Pharisees are like, whoa, wasn't expecting that. But, but in a way that Jesus does a lot of times, he gives a twofer. Remember how we've seen Jesus give a twofer many times? He doesn't just stop with Herod. He addresses the Pharisees as well. Look what he says to them in verse 33. Nevertheless, okay, in spite of the fact that I'm going to go about doing what I'm called to do here, I must go on my way. Okay, what was Jesus' way? We have seen this now. What was the way Jesus was going? Where was he ultimately headed to, church? He's headed to Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to go on my way, and I'm going to do it in my time. But he says this, I'm going to go on my way today, tomorrow, and the day following. In other words, saying this again, he's saying it to the Pharisees. I'm going to do what I do, not because you're threatening me to do something else. I'm going to do what I've been called to do. I'm going to do what God has planned for me to do. And then he drops this in. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. It was a well-known fact in Jewish history that Jerusalem was, was not a kind place to the prophets. Anybody who would take a stand and speak and be the mouthpiece for God eventually met their demise in Jerusalem. And here's what Jesus is saying. Basically, he's saying this. If Herod wants to kill me, then tell, me, tell him to meet me down in Jerusalem. That'll be the place where I'm at. Okay? It's kind of like when junior high school, whenever you, you got into a pushing and shoving match in gym class, and the gym teacher said, hey, that's enough, boys. And you, and you said to the other boy, I'll meet you after, after school out back on the back lot. 
Jesus is saying this, tell Herod he'll be able to find me. I'll be in Jerusalem. And you see, the Pharisees are going to get their wish here, aren't they? The Pharisees want him to end up in Jerusalem. And what he's saying to the Pharisees is this, guess what, guys? I'm going to get to Jerusalem. You're going to get your wish. I'm going to show up in Jerusalem. And, and, and Jesus is going to come to Jerusalem, and he basically tells him he's going to. And what strikes me is this. What strikes me is this. We've got to kind of look between the lines here and understand what's going on here. In the face of impending death, Jesus goes about his business and he does what he's called to do here. He knows he's going to die in Jerusalem. And, and he knows, he knows that it's not going to physically end well there. But here's what he says. This, this is the plan that the Father is, has given to me. This is, this is what was determined before the foundation of time that I would come and do this. I am going to finish this out. And do you see, do you comprehend, do you even begin to understand this morning, church, the amount of love that is in Jesus' statement here? Do, do you feel it at all this morning? What motivates Jesus to get to Jerusalem? Yes, it's obedience to the Father, but it's a love for his sheep. It's a love for his sheep. Many people wonder, and, and it's been argued, who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? Was it Herod? Was it Pilate? Was it the Jewish leaders? They all collaborated, did they not? They all were part of, a, if you will, this vast whatever wing conspiracy, left or right wing. I don't even know what the politics would be in Jerusalem at that time. But they were all part of this conspiracy to see Jesus dead. But, but let's understand a couple things. And in fact, I want you to keep your finger here, and I want to look at a couple of verses. Let's go back first to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, I want you to see what John says about the death of Jesus. Here's what John says about Jesus' death. Remind yourself, John's an eyewitness to his death, is he not? John, John was an eyewitness to the proceedings. John is here present in Luke chapter 13 when this stuff is going on. Okay, here's what John says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16. By this we know love that he, Christ, what? He laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for us. Notice John doesn't put it this way, that he was unjustly tried, that, that, that he was viciously you know, harmless, or attacked, and that, and that he didn't deserve this. No, he said Jesus laid down his life. Now keep that in your mind, and then go with me back to Acts chapter 4. Because in the second letter, if you will, that, that Luke writes to Theophilus, remember Luke is just part one, the Gospel of Luke is part one, the book of Acts is part two. In the second part, in Acts chapter four, Luke records this message that Peter preaches, right? And, and, and he's preaching it in front of the council in Jerusalem. The very people who, who think that they have gotten their way that they have eliminated Jesus and that they have solved their problems. And this is what he says, verse 26. Actually, let's go, let's go back to verse 25, because he quotes David. He says, and through the mouth of our father David, your servant said the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of earth have set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. 
For truly in this city, they're in Jerusalem. He says, truly in this city, there were gathered together against, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever, whose hand? Whose hand? God's hand. Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And immediately I think of the words in Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord, it pleased Almighty God to crush Jesus. Who killed Jesus? It was the plan of the Father. It was the plan of the Father. And so as we go back to Luke chapter 13 this morning, understand that Jesus is fully aligning himself with the Father's plan here. As if it was ever in question that he would do it, we see it here clearly. And we have to ask ourselves, what motivates this? What motivates this? It's his love for the Father and his submission to the Father and his love for his sheep. And we see that come out in this really these really brave words, and not just empty words, they're words that he's going to back up with his actions. I think we read the gospel accounts, and we have no idea, if you will, to, to even begin to think and unpeel the, the layers, if you will, of the onion to understand just the emotional, the emotional just hardship that Jesus is going through in this. Being fully man, knowing what he's saying here and what that's going to lead to. Do you grasp this morning the love of your Savior for you? Do you grasp it? And I would say to you that, that we probably don't grasp it the way that we should because we'd be a lot more obedient if we really did. I'm just going to be honest with us. If we really grasped the love of our Savior, we would be as obedient as he was to his Father here. And before the Pharisees can utter a word, Jesus says to them, hey, I'm going to be in Jerusalem because far be it that I would die anywhere else, because that's the place where prophets go to be killed. Before he can finish it, he addresses Jerusalem. Now, he's not there in Jerusalem at the time, but he's talking to Jerusalem, and in addressing Jerusalem, he's talking about all of Israel. And here's a message that Jesus has for his people. And understand this morning that, that in, in God's heart, in Jesus' heart, Israel holds a very special place. And it may not look like it in the world that we live in today, and if you're a student of history, it may not look that through all of history that, 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 that God has had a very special place in his heart for Israel. After all, they've suffered some of the most hardships that, of any nation, of any nationality, of any, any nation on this earth. Don't believe me? Do your research on what Nazi Germany did to the, to the Jews. And here's what Jesus says to Israel. In Jerusalem, in verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. it he, he knows, he knows the reality of this, and he knows that Israel's had a history of doing this. Here's what he says, how often would I have gathered your children together 
as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. In the verse before, we see this really bold, hard statement of Jesus, and then in the next verse, we see a side of Jesus that, that, that we really want to relate to, but we really don't completely understand. Israel, Jerusalem, the people that are rebelling against me, the, the people that keep rejecting me over and over and over. You, you not only reject me, you reject my disciples that I send to you. You keep rejecting me. How often would I have just gathered you like a chick would gather the, or a chicken would gather, the hen would gather the chickens under her wing. I would bring you in. I would protect you. I would shelter you. But you keep rejecting me. You keep sending me away. You keep sending me away. Jesus' desire here is, is that, that this prophet-rejecting nation that's facing coming judgment would come and repent, and he would take them in. It's an amazing thing that Jesus would love those who would reject him. And for three years, he demonstrated that love, did he not? For three years, he demonstrated that love as he, as he walked with them, as he taught them. Listen to the words of God in, in Ezekiel chapter 33. Listen, this, is, this is hard for us because we get wrapped up in our theology and our theological, you know, in our theological systems. And, we, and, we, and, and I believe in the sovereignty of God. Don't get me wrong. I do. I understand the sovereignty of God and I understand the implications of that. But, but also there are the words of scripture in the Old Testament. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11. This is God talking. Say to them, say to Israel, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. These are the words of Scripture. And anybody who would paint our God as this cold, unfeeling God that just selected just a select few and hates the rest has got it wrong. Now, I do believe that God has selected. But here's what he says. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Do you hear the heartbeat of God in that? Turn back. Turn back. Now, in the coming months, we're going to get to Luke chapter 19, but let's fast forward to Luke chapter 19, because this is not the only time that Jesus will address Israel this way. I want you to see another time when he addresses Israel this way. This is just on the heels of Jesus' triumphal entry, where, where they do say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we're going to get to that here in just a second. But notice, when he drew near, verse 41 of Luke 19, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. In that statement, Jesus is not only expressing his sorrow for Israel, he's predicting their future here. And it comes very true. So the main application here in verse 
34 and, and what we get to in verse 35 is, is for unbelieving Israel. But, but, but here's the thing for all of us. God loves, God loves his creation. And God, God doesn't want anyone to perish. And if he would do that with Israel, would he not do that with us? That he would take us and put us under his wings if we would just turn from our sin? Do you this morning know the safety of being under the wings and being sheltered by Christ? If you don't, it's a very scary world that we live in. But it's not just a love message in verse 34. There's also a truth message here in verse 35. And here's how he addresses Israel. Your house is forsaken. They don't even understand the seriousness of those words. Your, your house is forsaken. He's like, he's talking house, he's referring to temple, but he's not just talking about the temple, he's talking about Jerusalem and all of Israel. Because you have rejected me, John 1, verse 11, he came to his own and his own didn't receive him. Because you have rejected me, you're forsaken. You're cut off. How cut off were they? Well, in AD 68, Rome had had enough of Israel. They had had enough of all the problems that were going on in Jerusalem and the land of Israel. And so here's what they did. They laid siege to Jerusalem. Josephus, the historian at that time, estimates that a million people in Jerusalem died over those three years. A million people. They literally were taking bodies to the wall and throwing them over the wall. They didn't have any place to bury them. And on top of the million people that died, he estimates that over 100,000 Jewish men were taken as slaves. You see, when God says you're forsaken, you're forsaken. And throughout, Israel, or throughout Israel's history, the Jews have been mistreated as a fulfillment of God's curse on them. But I've got good news for Israel, just like I have good news for all of us. It's not going to last forever. Because Jesus issues a promise here in verse 35b. At the end of this verse, he says this, blessed, he says, I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, some people would say that that happened on the day of his triumphal entry, and they did say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but they really didn't mean it. Because in less than a week, what had they done with Jesus? They had crucified him. But Jesus does issue, he, he, he reissues, if you will. He just affirms the promise that God had made long before to Abraham. And, and, and because Israel rejected him and rejected their Messiah, they're going to have to pay the price. They're going to be cursed. But here's the thing. God has always had it in his heart to spare Israel and to redeem Israel. One of the most misused verses of Scripture is Jeremiah 29 and verse 11. Maybe you have it hanging on your wall at home. The verse says this, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That looks good on a Facebook feed, doesn't it? Except that the promise was for who? Israel. Now, will God do that for his children? Yes. But that promise is for Israel. God has 
a plan for Israel's future. And he always has had one. And there is going to be a time when Israel will receive Jesus as their Messiah. They still haven't received him as their Messiah. But there will come a time when they truly will say, Blessed is he, the Messiah, who comes in the name of the Lord. Israel will confess and embrace Christ. Look with me at when this happens and when this is prophesied about in Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah had a lot to say. He's one of the last prophets, and he had a lot to say about Israel's future. And in Zechariah chapter 12, that's in that part of the Bible that's usually really clean because your fingers haven't got to it. Okay, it's in that section of the prophets, the minor prophets that we don't touch very often. It's right there. Okay, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, he says this, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. He'll pour out a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimen in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, and the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. And on that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Wow. God's got a plan for Israel and it's a good one. He's going to pour his grace out on them, and he's going to pour out this desire on them that they would plead for mercy from him. And you know what he's going to give them? He's going to give them grace, and he's going to give them mercy. And there's going to be a fountain open for them, and Israel will be redeemed. Hmm. We haven't seen that yet, have we? We haven't seen that yet. But here's the thing. The take-home is this, God keeps his word. The same way that he said that Israel was forsaken and that, and that Israel was judged, and it, it didn't even take but a generation to pass after Jesus leaves, and Israel literally, when they got done with the temple, when Rome got done with the temple, there was not one stone standing on another. They left part of the wall that we see that's the western wall, and you know why they left that part of the wall there? to prove that they had the capability to tear it down because it was a very impressive wall. They tore everything else down but that one section to prove how powerful they were. But I got news for the kingdoms of this world. One day the temple will be rebuilt. <laughs> one day Israel will worship at the temple. They will worship the true Lamb of God. You see... Jesus' obedience to God's plan and his determination to carry out the Father's will, that's what makes this all possible. If Jesus gives up here at Luke chapter 13, at the end of Luke chapter 13, if he says, this is too much, I can't do this anymore, I'm not going to go through it, since there's no hope for Israel. And if there's no hope for Israel, there's no hope for you and for me. And, and the, the key thought of this text is, are you safe in Christ? 
That's the question for everybody in this room this morning. Are you safe in Christ? Because if you're not safe in Christ, the message to you is the same message to Israel. I I would gather you. I, I would bring you. I would bring you. But you're not willing. And the ultimate message is this, when your house is forsaken, when when God says your house is forsaken, when Jesus says your house is forsaken, he means it. He means it. And we don't know, we don't know when that forsaking is going to take place in our own lives if we're outside of Christ. We don't know, we don't know how much time we have. But if you're here this morning and you are safe in Christ, do you realize the implications of that, to be safe in Christ? Do you understand the beauty of what it means to be sheltered by his wings? To be cared for by him? Whatever adversity is coming to you, whatever adversity that you think you're getting pummeled with, let's understand this first. It first had to come through his wings. Right? So, so can you imagine what it would have been if it hadn't come through his wings? The example of Jesus is clear. And as I was thinking about it, I think it applies to all of us who are believers. But but I want to end, I want to end this morning by just talking to men in this church. I want to talk to men. Men, you're the heads of your families. Right? Grunt it out. I'm the head. The problem is. Most of our families don't look like we're leading like, I'm the leader. Most of our families look like, there's my dad, he's the leader. Jesus gives us a big example here, does he not? And it's a lot to live up to. But, But let's understand something here. Right now, in the world that we live in, and it's always been this way, but it's getting really clear right now. Can I just put it that way? It's getting really clear. Are are the sides really clear here, men, between evil and good? The sides are getting really clear. If we will not follow the example of Christ, we are leading our families improperly. Just going to put it that way. Either we stand up for what is right. When evil is around us, we call out that evil And we say, I'm going to go about the business that God has called me to do. That's the world that we're living in. And and I will admit to you, it is getting harder and harder to do that. There is a lot of pressure against us. There's a lot of public opinion that's against us. Even our own government at times is turning against us. Who cares? Our God on the throne is much more powerful. And either we're committed to him or we're not. And it's not just our families that are at stake here. It's the local church that's at stake here. Men, if we will not be men in the face of adversity, our churches are going to crumble. Do you understand that? I'm not even talking about leading an insurrection or Pastor Dan saying we're forming a militia. No, no. It's not what I'm saying. Don't hear that. What I'm saying is, we're going to have a holy rebellion of doing God's will, and that will be a rebellion enough, will it not? 
We don't, we don't even have to arm ourselves. We're, we're plentifully armed right here with God's Word. We've got to be committed, men, to do the right thing. Because the Pharisees and the Herods of our day are just as serious as the Pharisees and the Herods in Jesus' day. We're going to do it today. We're going to do it tomorrow. And the third day. And the fourth day. And the fifth day. And hopefully Jesus returns by the sixth day. Amen? <laughs> right? But we're going to do it. Because to fail right now in this mission is to say that he's not worthy to be followed. And, and I think we sang this morning that he is worthy to be followed, did we not? And so get the example here of Jesus. I realize we're not fully God and fully man, but, but also we have the promise of greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And so let's follow closely. Let's follow the example of Jesus. Father, we, we can't even begin to fathom your love. We just can't even begin to fathom the love of Jesus that would knowingly go to the cross to suffer what he did for our sake. But we can respond with hearts of gratitude. And more than just hearts of gratitude, we can respond, Lord, with, with hearts that are committed to being obedient. The same Jesus who, who said, I'm going to do this today and tomorrow and the next day is the one who we're called to follow. And so I just pray, I pray specifically for the men in this room that we would be committed to just following Jesus today and then when we wake up tomorrow, committed to following Jesus tomorrow and then after that, the next day. Because I know this, he's not going to lead us astray. He's not going to lead us wrong. I pray that our families would be transformed by this. I pray that our church would be transformed by this, this commitment to follow you and walk with you. Thank you for being the Savior, Jesus, who would gather us under your wings. We pray for those today who are not safely under the wings of Jesus, that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would turn and repent and, and stop their rebellion against, against this one who would shelter them under their wings, under his wings. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.